Blog Talk Radio.
will not uh, accept an assault on those rights. All right. uh, While you're doing that, uh, all right, am I, I, for some reason, am I not on right now? If I'm not on, please... uh, Please post it in there. Excuse me, guys. I sure hope they're not going to be uh, jacking with the phones again and turning me on and off. <clears throat> okay, says so I am back on. Okay, all right. Just want to make sure. <clears throat> all right, uh, that's what I'd like you to do right now is uh, while you guys are listening, is uh, begin, uh, get on your uh, representative's page and send them an email. And then uh, send them an email uh, every couple of hours this evening. When you get tomorrow during the day, send them some more emails. Let them know that uh, you're watching every minute you're watching this, and it's going to determine how you're voting. That's the most important thing you can do right now. That is the... That's the power that you have, and it's a uh, it's a fairly uh, intense power because your representatives, your senators, your congressmen, uh, everyone up there is uh, they 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 want to. I don't know how much they want to uh, serve you, uh, which is what their job is. But I know they want to serve themselves, and that is they want to keep themselves in office. And you can let them know the only way they're going to keep themselves in office is by doing the things you ask them to do. And 
this shouldn't be a uh, – it should be a polite letter, but it should be – you should be letting them know in no uncertain terms that you're not going to accept this. You are not going to accept uh, an infringement on your rights. <clears throat> uh, all right, let me uh, let me give you just a little bit uh, of the news that's going on right now because there's a good bit of uh, there's a good bit of uh, discussion of this. There's a uh, United States Marine. I'm sure you guys have seen this. It's been Running through the uh, running through the uh, Facebook and Twitter and everything else, I'm going to pop a uh, a link to it into the chat room here. You can take a look at it. But <clears throat> there's a letter from a Marine to uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, and uh, I'm going to read it to you because this is what he's saying. Uh, addressed to Senator Dianne Feinstein, I will not register my weapons should this bill be passed. But I do not believe it is the government's right to know what I own, nor do I think it's prudent to tell you what I own so that it may be taken from me by a group of people who enjoy armed protection yet decry me having the same a crime. You, ma'am, have overstepped a line that is not your domain. I'm a Marine Corps veteran of eight years. I will not have some woman who proclaims the evil of an inanimate object yet carries one tell me I may not have one. I am not your subject. I'm the man who keeps you free. I'm not your servant. I'm the person whom you serve. I am not your peasant. I'm the flesh and blood of America. I'm the man who fought for my country. I'm the man who learned I am an American, and you will not tell me that I must register my semi-automatic AR-15 because of the actions of some evil man. I will not be disarmed to suit the fear that has been established by the media and your misinformation campaign against the American public. We, the people, deserve better than you. Respectfully submitted, Joshua Boston, Corporal, United States Marine Corps. This is the attitude of uh, of a great many folks, and I'm not sure why the I'm not sure why the the representatives, why the powers that be in in the government think that this is something that's going to work, and uh, I encourage you to to continue doing research. And to continue uh, writing your representatives, so I'd like you don't just listen to the hype. Don't listen to emails that are being sent to you, and then you push forward and send them on. If somebody sends something to you, take a look and see what it is. See if it's real or not before you send it on. But I encourage you to to read the bill as it's been submitted. Okay, read the bill as it's been submitted, and then. Uh, and then talk to your congressman, uh, to your representatives uh, intelligently on it and demand that your rights not be infringed, okay? There's a, there's a lot of opposition to this and to the National Defense Authorization Act that just ran through. Uh, there is a, There's actually... 
two four-star generals, uh, Marine generals, who have read and written uh, op-eds in the New York Times that uh, they demand President Obama veto the National Defense Authorization Act. This is a bill that allows the government to use the military to indefinitely detain American citizens without due process. Now, you may not understand what what this means or what it's saying, but I'll tell you what it is right now. That means this bill would allow you to be taken into custody if for some reason, for any reason, if somebody has deemed you uh, a threat, that you can be taken into custody without due process, without any type of uh, of a court hearing, any type of uh, representation, uh, nothing. You can be taken into and then indefinitely held. You can disappear into a Guantanamo-like uh, situation and be indefinitely held. <clears throat> uh, Charles... C. Krulak and Joseph P. Hoare, these are both four-star Marine generals, published uh, these pieces on December 12th. And uh, the the op-ed that they wrote starts with a direct demand that President Obama veto the uh, National Defense Authorization Act in order to protect our country from the false choice between our safety and ideas. Uh, This is... This is a very, very dangerous place that we're going into, a very, very dangerous place that America is moving into. Uh, I've got to tell you that uh, I look at it, and I think about the years of 1773 and 1774, 1775, in the colonies. I think about this kind of the same way because... If you look at what's happened then and what's happening now, you have the you have General Gage, who's the governor general of the colonies, deciding that the best thing for him to do in order to keep the peace is to limit the colonists' access to powder. If there's no powder, then they cannot uh, they can't shoot anything out of their muskets because that's uh, that's the thing that they need that they can't produce locally, really. So he begins uh, what uh, is called the powder raids. Now, the first one is successful. He successfully takes what's called the King's Reserve of powder and uh, from right outside uh, uh, Salem. And uh, and when the colonists find out about it, they they get furious. And there are a couple of more raids that are uh, that are attempted but are unsuccessful. Each of the each of the following raids are unsuccessful, and I don't think Dick Gage realized that what he was doing was prepping and training the colonists to put together uh, a system, a early warning system, and a ready reaction force that could be applied if it was needed. And uh, we certainly we know that it was needed on April 1775. We're getting the same things now. We have people lining up by the hundreds of thousands 
purchasing firearms. And uh, the majority of these firearms are the types of firearms that uh, that would be considered uh, evil rifles under the assault weapons ban. They're the military-type rifles, the Air-15s, uh, Garands, M14s, all the uh, the military-type rifles. And they're buying them up by the well, literally by the millions now. <clears throat> and why are they doing it? Are they doing it because they have decided they want to go hunting, or that they they want to begin target shooting? And the answer is no. They're doing it because they are in fear of the government. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> That's the uh, that's the end of my tirade. But I'll tell you, if uh, if you use social media, and uh, you've heard me before talk about social media, that uh, I'm not that big a fan of it. But uh, I have I have created my social media contacts uh, by selecting folks uh, who I consider. Uh, to, to think in the same vein as me, and so now what I have is a is uh, a page that scrolls in front of me of uh, several thousand people who are feeding information in from all over the country. So if you want to find out what's going on in the country, that's a great way to do it because if you look at your say your Facebook page or if you look at your Twitter page, uh, as long as you haven't. Uh, hook yourself up with a bunch of people who are who are going to be talking about how they just washed their hair or how they just uh, ate a great new bean soup at some distro, uh, then you're going to be getting information from all over the nation uh, at a pretty rapid rate. I encourage you to uh, not to get on any of the hypes not to get on any of the the uh the the hyped up emails that uh are probably gonna be coming your way. Uh, they usually always come at your way, they always come my way. But I encourage you to do research yourself. Uh read uh, read the read the information from the trusted websites uh and uh and you find out what's going on. We've got uh, we've got people who are calling for uh, for the to dissolve the constitution. And these are not people who are calling to to dissolve the constitution. I think for any good reason, they're saying that uh, that it doesn't work anymore, and that uh, it should be scrapped. We have people uh, advising the president to arrest people who disagree with him. And uh, we've even got folks, uh, I want to, before I before we bring our guests, I just want to bring on a, another little thing I picked up here, and that is the company Surefire. And I've got some Surefire products. But the company Surefire was lobbying the government to pass the House version of the National Defense Authorization Act, because they uh, 
they received a $23 million contract from the DOD, and they would be arming troops, not we got everybody's pulling you out of Iraq and Afghanistan. But they're going to be arming troops who are going to be stationed in the United States with all of the updated night raiding equipment that uh, they sell. So this is, uh, and then this isn't hype. This is open information. But I encourage you to to spend some time finding out what's going on. Don't. Uh, don't sit in the dark. Spend some time reading uh, some of the uh, the main trusted websites, and then uh, and then make up your mind. And then continue to uh, to stay in con- contact with your senators and congressmen. All right, have they have they taken me off the air again? Can you guys hear me? I see that uh, Sam has posted in there that uh, that he's putting it on standby. Can you guys hear me? All right. Okay. All right. Uh, and now, folks, I would like to uh, I'd like to bring on our guest for tonight. This is uh, Michael Metzger. He is uh, author of the uh, of a, a great novel on uh, the events that were occurring in Boston in 1773, and uh, he his pen name is Nelson Abbott. And uh, for you guys on the on the uh, oh, looks like he do we have him? For you, for you guys on the uh, on the Appleseed forum, he is known as Blind Man. Okay, uh, I think we just lost him. We'll wait for him to call back in. <clears throat> he uh, he's written a fantastic book, and it's a historical fiction. And I know you guys have heard me talk before about uh, about the fact that there is not a lot of uh of written word uh, that uh that covers this period in American history and uh and this is a great novel that he's written okay I see that we've lost some other callers now be sure if uh if for some reason, if uh, if my phone, if they start uh, dropping me on the switchboard, make sure that, uh, that somebody posts it in the chat so that uh, I'm not sitting here talking uh, forever without uh, without knowing it. He's written a novel that uh, that puts together characters that he's created in this uh, historical fiction story, along with the actual characters of that time. You know, there's a lot of there's such a, a such a small amount of history that has actually been written down that we don't know uh, everything that has happened, uh, or we certainly can't. There's a lot of time that's unaccounted for in uh, in this time period. And uh, let's see, here we go. <clears throat> and 
And this book helps fill it in. All right. Okay, do we have him back on? Okay, I think we've got him back on. Uh, okay, so I'd like to welcome to the show uh, uh, Michael Metzger. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, Scout, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. It's a little bit confusing right now because we've had uh, we've had some kind of a strange problem where they were for some reason the uh, it seems like the system is really jacking with the the people that are listening and with the phones. I don't know if it's just uh, typical bad service or if it, if there's some uh, some other intent. Well, I'm glad you're back. I'm glad you made it back on. And uh, I'd like to welcome you to the show. And I gave the folks a bit of an introduction. And uh, and I told them that uh, you're the author of Freedom's Forge, Striking the Sparks of Liberty, and that you are a father and a husband, that uh, you are a former uh, Special Weapons and Tactics team member, and you're an Apple Seed instructor currently, and a nationally known author now. So congratulations. Wow. Uh, Thank you for very kind words. <laughs> tell us a uh, <clears throat> tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you uh, how did you get to where you are right now? Oh well, gosh, uh, I got out of the, the police academy about '89. I, I was I served in pretty much every different area of law enforcement. Um, I was a SRT for a while, as you said, and I was one of the uh, the marksmen, which is the polite way of saying uh, we were the we were the snipers. Uh, currently, I'm working with the uh, the court system. Uh, I'm a court securities officer. I protect basically protect the judges, the juries. I'm we're the guys that kind of you know grease the wheels and make things move. Um, can be a really great job. Uh, I feel very lucky to work with a great group of people. And, uh, proud to do it. Uh, my first uh, apple seed was about uh, 2008, and uh, it took me two tries to to make it to get my patch. They say that uh, apple seed is not just a a test for yourself; it's a torture test for your gear. And I'm kind of living proof. The front sight literally fell off of my rifle during one of the final stages. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I tell you, it's happened to a lot of people, and uh, that's one of the reasons that now, you know, at every event, I'm, it's happened to me so many times. Uh, <laughs> it's happened to me once. That's all it took. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's happened to me at events so often that uh, I, that's one of the ways I start out the event, because I don't want them to go through four hours of work, and that in that four hours have, uh, have it dissolved by having a sight fall off their rifle or having their scope fall off or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I always start with... Uh, we check in everybody's uh, gear and making sure it's nice and and snug and tight. Let me ask you this, uh, Michael. How did you how did you hear about Appleseed? Well, uh, I was on a Second Amendment forum, and I noticed uh, one of the other people who was was participating had uh, learned about Appleseed in a web the website. So I took a, a spare minute, and I checked the site, and I thought, wow, what a neat program. And uh, I messaged the guy inside the forum and, and said, hey, uh, do they have any apple seeds anywhere around me here? And uh, in classic apple seed fashion, he wrote back, no, we don't. Why don't you make that happen? Uh, <laughs> and uh, I we, we messaged a few times back and forth. I wasn't really sure that I could do something this this big. It seemed so impressive. 
And he said, well, don't worry. There's a there's a guy in a nearby town, Bowling Green, Ohio, who is, is an alum, and he wants to do the same thing. I'm going to put the two of you together. That was uh, Mike Nemeth, who goes by Poster Boy. And the rest is kind of history. We We got together. We talked it through got the paperwork, and we both approached our, our firing range and said, we really want to do this. They said, if, if you guys are willing to, to do the go-ahead, then fine. And Mike is uh, our shoot boss. Uh, it, as I said, it took me two tries to make it. Um, I kept coming back just because I, I really enjoyed the history aspects of Appleseed. And eventually I, I took... Uh, the orange hat, and I started as an instructor in training and worked my way up. I'm, I'm a red hat now. Uh, <clears throat> so kind of the rest was history. So that's how uh, I ended up in, or ended up, how, how I became part of Appleseed family. You know, uh, as you were talking about your your bio and your history and stuff, and you mentioned that you were a sniper with the with SRT, and, you know, I've noticed, uh, I've noticed quite often that folks, a lot of folks who are be who are really good shots and stuff when they come into Appleseed, you know, we're teaching them uh, it, it's not something it's not some brand new system, but we are teaching them a new system to use, and uh, and sometimes it takes a little bit of time to wrap your mind around a new system and make it work for you, and uh, and and going to two events and making your patch is a good. That's a good uh, deal there. Well, I was I was pretty proud to do it on my second, and and you're very right. I mean, it, it was not so much that I didn't understand what was being discussed, but the, the application and the new the new manner in which things were done, and just the the people saying, "Look, you may not use this forever, but try it today because it'll work," and just you know the different way of say using a seated position or trying the various different seated positions until I found one that I really thought was going to work for me. Well, was, a lot of people bring kind of, bring the the knowledge that they have and the skills that they have and they may be they may be very very good some skills that they have, but I think about it when I think about it I visualize uh like a line. And sometimes the line can be thin, and that means that you can be a really good shot in certain circumstances and doing cert- certain and, uh, you know, using the things that you know exactly how to do and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then whenever you go through an apple seed, I see that line becoming a lot wider. So it, I, I see it as really enhancing the skills that you brought with you and making you a much better shooter overall, uh, even though uh, even though you may think when you first come to an apple seed, because I see people do this, fairly often, they'll come and they'll shoot and they'll say, you know what, I'm a, I'm an excellent shot. I can shoot to, you know, sub-minute and I don't know what's going on here. And uh, <laughs> and it's just, uh, it's just wrapping their minds around a new technique is all it is. And if they stick with it and come back again, then uh, usually folks, uh, usually folks that are highly skilled will get their patch on their, uh, on their second event. Sometimes it takes a little while for it to to sink in. But congratulations, because uh, two apple seeds and rifle patch is a pretty uh, decent, pretty decent skill level. What does your family think about you being in apple seed, and what do they think about you now riding? 
Well, um, I'm I'm married to a very wonderful, supportive woman. I, I think I said it best when I in my uh, dedication in the book. You know, I happened to grab my copy right here. Um, I mean, I, firstly, I dedicated it to to all of us, the members of Appleseed. But I said, and most specifically, to my beautiful, long-suffering wife Jennifer, who's bored to death by history, as in <laughs> countless trips to his, historic events and all my what-if discussions. I love you, and this one is for you. Um, I, I I really don't know if I could say it any better than that. She she she's been incredibly supportive in this. She's been right beside me the whole way. Um, if with the apple seed, um, I told her I wanted to do this, and I tried the first time. I came back and I said, "Well, the sight fell off of my rifle. I'm afraid I I, I failed." She said, "Well, you're going to go back, aren't you?" And I said, well, yes, I think I will. And, Afterwards, when I told her I, we, I wanted to take the hat and I wanted to, to start to teach these things, she was very supportive. Um, she really she keeps the home fires burning when I when I'm gone and apple seeding, and she's she's put up with my my historical fascinations. And uh, my son Jake is nine. He's absolutely my little clone. He he takes after me in just about everything. He's such an amazing little guy to watch grow up. My daughter Addison is six years old. She's taking kindergarten right now by storm, and just smart, smart as a little whip, and she amazes me every day. Um, <clears throat> but apple seed, it's a sacrifice, and, and no more so than with with us when we we get up before the dawn every morning and, and come home with a flashlight. And it's we're missing these family events, but we think this is really an important thing to do to try to talk to our, our fellow citizens about waking up and, and becoming involved in, in the things that are happening in their town and in their nation. Um, but, Absolutely. You know, I know I'm, but I know that I'm putting a burden onto onto my wife, and she's she's so wonderful to put up with it and, and, and to do so without complaint. And I, I I'm really indebted to her, and I know that. She she understands what we're trying to do and, and and she's supportive of it and she's she's proud of me that I can I can get out and I can talk the history and I can explain these things. Well, my well, please, how did you? Well, you you you've told us how you got to be uh, how you ended up at Appleseed and instructing, but that's still kind of a jump to. Uh, to decide to become a writer about uh, the time period in our country, and uh, and I know that, but you and I have talked before, and you've said that you were a history buff. But but how did you how did you make the jump from being on the line and, and teaching the apple seed history and and telling the story to uh, to really telling the story uh, in a novel? How did you make that jump? Oh, well, um, I'm 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 a history nut. I'm a history goof, and I, I'm the first one to say that. Actually, my wife would probably be the first one to say that. Um, but uh, when I heard the 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 histories that we talked about at Appleseed as as a student that first time, and I, I was sitting there, I have never heard any of this stuff before, and I and I could tell you the the name of Grant's horse. I know this history, American history, has been my fascination, but I didn't know these things, and I wanted to. I bought my first copy of, uh, of Paul Revere's Ride after my first apple seed. I'm, I think I'm on my third now. I wear them out just going through them over <laughs> and over again. Um, we, uh, when I started doing 
talking about the history when I got to do my first my first strike. Um, I was amazed how few people know even the basics about these events. I mean, if you tell if you mention Paul Revere to most people, they go, "Oh yeah, that the British are coming guy." And as an apple seeder knows, he didn't say the British are coming. And if you're trying to talk to them about the things that this amazing man did, not just that night but beforehand, you, you get the blank, this blank stare. Well, he didn't really do that. And uh, the the roots of me starting to write this, I've always liked to write. I've written articles and things before. But when I started to jot things down for this story, it, the characters just started to speak to me, and I really wanted to go through it and, and to see it through. And I remember uh, I was teaching one of the, or I was doing one of the history strikes at an apple seed, and a, uh, a Michigan instructor named, uh, he goes by Bill Winkle, walked up to me afterwards and shook my hand, and he said, "You, you can tell history scary good." And I thought, if I want to tell this story, why am I not? And that was really when I sat down and I started writing in, in earnest and trying to figure out how I wanted to tell these things. Wow. Well, <laughs> well, what is uh, what did your family think about that? Because uh, uh, because writing a book is uh, it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty large project, uh, you know, to grapple with. Yeah, they did something with tea, but 
nobody knows about the 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 blockade that was being put up and we didn't want this tea but it was being brought in anyway and there was this machinations going on behind the doors to bring it in as one of the characters says if we we could bring it in at point of bayonet but we don't but we aren't because we're such magnanimous rulers right and, and a lot of people don't realize that uh that the amount of tea that was thrown overboard it wasn't a small amount it wasn't uh it wasn't just a, uh, you know, so a few cups of tea thrown overboard. It, it was enough that, that was you could standing. walk on the tea. You could you could stand on the tea, uh, you know, there in the bay, and uh, Which one it was a tremendous had amount. Yeah. And the, yeah. the amount yeah, of tea out there and stand on it and throw it back into the water. Yeah, and the amount of tea involved was was staining the, the hulls of ships a year later. It was. An immense amount. They were throwing full, full gigantic chests overboard, and not not just one, but I believe it was in the area of like 140 between all the different ships. And yes, a, a huge chest of tea. Well, that would be that would get them in touch with the EPA now. <laughs> it sure would. <laughs> <laughs> well, your book runs from. Uh, it takes you. You start off with a, a fast-paced slam straight into the Boston Tea Party. Mm-hmm. And and it ends up just short of the, uh, the shots being fired at Lexington. And and uh, we're going to talk more about the book, but let me ask you. i got to ask this now because I read the book, and it's great. And, and, uh, and I want some more. And I, I gotta, I've got to believe that you must be thinking about uh, about a continuation with the events of uh, Lexington and uh, Concord and Battle Road in the future. Is that something that we can look forward to? Well, well most definitely. I'm, I'm really, I'm really hoping I get a, a great response on this. I'm looking forward. To, I'm very excited about the idea of just continuing forward. With this as a series, uh, in fact, as I've as I've been writing it, there are characters. Uh, for, for example, David Lampson makes an appearance, as does Mother Bathrick, and it, it's a very very small role right now. But I want the readers to understand how intertwined societies were. The, the small towns that lived so close together, all these people knew each other, and I want the the reader to understand the interplay between these people as the story goes on and every apple seed out there knows exactly who I'm talking about but I, I want the reader who just picks this up and, and may not know exactly the events to 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 greet these people and then learn to think of them as as the friends and, and the good guys that we know they are right and I mean, give us just a give us a quick outline. Uh, without revealing any of the surprises or anything, but give us a quick outline of of what the story's about and and how it's going to run. Well, the uh, the first story, the first book, of course, Freedom's Forge, uh, Striking the Sparks of Liberty, uh, starts with my my hero, or the the main character, um, Daniel Ferguson, a Scottish fugitive, waking up on the the shores of Boston, and he uh, meets up with, with several of the historical characters, um, Paul Revere being one of them, as well as Sam Adams and, and Dr. Warren, for example. 
and he participates in the uh, the Boston Tea Party. In fact, he goes back onto the very ship that brought him from Europe to the New World. Um, from there, he uh, ends up moving through Cambridge and into Lexington, where he takes up residence. Uh, as he's moving through this part of the story, he meets up with uh, with Sam Whittemore, one of one of my personal favorite characters of the events of the dates of of April nineteenth, and they strike up a, a friendship that lasts throughout the story. Part one of the other characters is uh, is Meg, who's a one of the tavern girls, tavern workers that she ends up also in Boston, or excuse me, in uh, Lexington, and the two characters are are used. I use them to allow the reader to experience the world around them, not just the town itself, but also the, the social mores and the understandings that people had in those times. Um, Daniel goes on and being a trusted member of the the Sons of Liberty now, he's assisting in the concealing of powder against the day when we may have the Sons of Liberty may have to defend themselves. Let's see. Uh the third character of the story is, is the antagonist who is Lieutenant Wainwright of the Lights, and he being one of the British soldiers gives the, the British view uh, of the time period and begins to interact with the my my characters Daniel and Meg and the story goes on as they move through the different events of the time the powder alarms is one that I I talk a lot about when I'm working in Appleseed and also now I really felt that I needed to explore it better to give the reader an understanding of a time that literally nobody knows even occurred and Another good one is the the memorial of the Boston Massacre at Old South, the Old South Meeting House, which almost started the war that day. Uh, Daniel, Meg, and the lieutenant are all there at the time. And the story continues on with uh, quite a bit, which if you want to go into that later, I'd be glad to do it. And okay. it ends just uh, a bit, just in the moments before, the, the shots that will ring out in Lexington that will start the revolution. And uh, there's also, I, I kind of considered it cheating, but I really didn't want to leave the story just there. I, I have a short author's analog where I talk about the the people that were involved in the storyline, and I try to draw the distinction between those who really existed versus, versus my fictitious characters for the the reader who might not be informed about it. And I add on a little teaser chapter that is a, kind of a taste of the events of book two. Wow. Well, uh, the, you know, whenever I read, or whenever anyone reads, uh, the history that is available because, because there's not a lot, and I've discussed this with you, and I've discussed this with the radio listeners that there is not a lot of history that's actually that we have access to. I mean there's you could go digging for it because you did, you found a lot of it. But because because there was not a lot written down in the first place, I mean because it's two hundred and thirty five years ago we lost uh there was a lot of the uh the information has been lost. There's a lot of time that's 
unaccounted for. We know that that certain people were in certain places and, and did certain things at certain points, but you know, there's a great deal of time that's unaccounted for, and uh, the the committees of safety, the committee of correspondence, uh, all the colonial politics and stuff working behind the scenes. Did this? Uh, I, I just find it uh, interesting that you're able to fill in these spots. Now it is fictional, but uh, but you've been able to fill in these spots by tying in actual characters with the characters you you created, and. Uh, uh, I guess I, what I'm wondering is, you had to, you created many of the events and specific to the characters that you deal with in your book. Now, what were you trying to to tell the readers by using these specific events and uh, the things that you wrote about in the book? Well, um, of course, anytime you know, a writer is trying to put down anything, he, he's trying to convey something either about you know the nobility of your of the antagonist or the protagonist for example or or something like that um i uh i think my a, a great example would be like i was discussing at at the old south meeting house um you really kind of get to see the the protagonist and the antagonist daniel and the lieutenant really in their now, in in their most natural elements, um, to uh, to kind of give it a thumbnail sketch, the uh, Lieutenant Wainwright is attempting to, I, I guess the the kindest term would be arrest Meg, who he at that time believed was working for him as as a, something of an agent, and Daniels has seen this and he decides that he is going to intervene and and break the two of them apart. But before this, the uh, the events have have unfolded, and <clears throat> excuse me, um, the, the the near riot is broken out, and he's walking around trying to calm people down because he does not want the this great revolution, which he dreads more than anything else, to start, especially not in a church, because being of a Scottish extraction, he understands that um, when Robert the Bruce had to kill someone in an old church. He was branded forever as a murderer and, and right. communicated, and he doesn't want these things to happen again. But when he when he goes between and he tries to split up Meg and and the lieutenant, we really see Daniel totally in in command of himself and sure of himself, and he's directed and he knows what he's doing. Uh, up until that part in the book, he's been desperately trying to sort of fit into this society, but being a uh, what, what would basically be called a fealty a fealty soldier from Scotland. He's very used to the idea of of fighting, and he gets between the two of them. And using basically just his, his wit, he manages to back down this lieutenant who's standing there with a loaded pistol and a sword with lots of redcoats behind him. He manages to get the man thinking, "I can't win this fight," and and backs him down. Another great example would be. Uh, when he Daniel, that is, is um, has a, a totally fictionalized meeting with Mother Bathrick, and he decides that it's not within him to allow the idea that this old woman might go hungry, and he actually splits up his the food that he's carrying with her 
because he's just he's just a moral and good man. Uh, there's also a, another scene when uh, Daniel is trying to to rescue uh, Meg, who's become lost in a the swamp after the spring thaw, and there's a cold, icy rain coming down, and it would be the end of both of them. But through his resourcefulness and his creativity, he manages to get a fire started and, and find them shelter enough to get them through the night. Uh, to the other side of things, we have uh, Lieutenant Wainwright, and well, specifically, I'm thinking of the first time that you, as the reader, get to meet him. I, I tried to uh, paint him quite differently. He's walking imperiously about amongst uh, his soldiers who are basically butchering two dead men to make it appear that there has been an Indian attack. And I try to uh, portray him as a man who sees everyone around him is little more than a means to an end. They're just, they're chattel. There's nothing to him. You know, the common term today would be sociopath. And later on, I try to show a different lieutenant when he's snuck into Buckman's tavern to check on Meg, and he's intoxicated, and he's drunkenly grousing about how the British caste system has placed him unfairly in this lowly position, and the purchase system that the British Army used to uh, upgrade its officers or to allow someone into the officer caste is just so unfair. And what I was trying to portray in that scene was just this man who possibly unreasonably is so morosely feeling sorry for himself. Well, the, you, you mentioned the, uh, the, the uh, what would you call it? I, I guess today you would call it like the false flag attack on the... Uh, on the merchants who were uh, on the way to to buy some goods that were being smuggled in, uh, because at the time that this is what a good many of the colonials were doing. They were they were trying to get around the taxes that had been put on the stuff, and they would buy stuff. The smugglers would come ashore at uh, at small bays and inlets along the, the famous coast. Famous such smugglers, they, yes, yes. Yeah, but, they would meet them there, and they would buy their goods and stuff. Now you had uh, you have some uh, British Mr. Trotter, Mr. Trotter, Pelinor, and of course Meg, who at that time was working for Mr. Trotter, go to meet some of the Dutch traders who have pulled in. And it was a fascinating event at the time that the East India Trading Company had been offered this total monopoly on all trade in the American colonies. But they would go to the same places the Dutch traders would go, and they would buy literally the same products. The only difference would be the, the East India stamp or the Royal Crown stamp. And right. the colonials had absolutely no problem with, hey, if I can save a, a few, uh, well, what would be the, if I can save a few pennies, or if I can save a few, you know, pounds, I will buy the uh, the tobacco that doesn't have that little stamp. Um, and it, there was a, a well-understood practice in the time. But the British were, and the, the East India Trade Company, of course, were very much against it. Right, and you had uh, you actually had some some British regular soldiers who are, who are dressed, uh, they dress themselves up as civilians, and they go and they murder these people on the way to buy their, their goods and try to make it look like... Uh, uh, the work of of Indians, and did uh, did you did you see anything like that happening in uh, your research? Did you find any accounts of of uh, people murdered or highwaymen or or 
or things being done that were not above board by the uh, by the British at that time? Um, I can't think of a specific incident that I could cite, but at the same time, you know, as as the lieutenant is walking through, saying, "Now, you know, put a little more back into it and, and make this, you know, make that look like an Indian attack. We're trying to simulate an Indian attack." And of course, if the British at the time did control pretty much any source of recording, you wouldn't find them in the first place. And right. the, you know, the uh, the chestnut of the the British officer who has to get something done, and the loyal underling cased sergeant who is willing to do whatever needs to do to, you know, make his officer happy. It's such a chestnut; it's almost ununderstood. So do, do I think these things were happening? Yes, unquestionably they probably were. Um, just and as, a lot uh, of the a lot of the uh, a lot of the I guess bad guys uh, in the story uh, turn out to be loyalists, not actual soldiers, but loyalists. Uh, people who individuals who are loyal to the crown and uh, and don't have that great of, uh, of morals or scruples and. Uh, and they do a lot of bad things, and we know that this happened uh, a great the, deal uh, yeah, Tories, in the lead up yeah, and in the actual yeah, yeah. revolution. Right, the the loyalist Tories who were who took this opportunity to uh, to settle old scores and stuff like that. And in the book, Tories was was a huge help to me in in this, and we really do have to think of the American Revolution not just as a our rebellion against the crown, but also it was one of the first civil war, and exactly. the loyalists were were fighting very, I mean, strenuously as much as they could. A lot of the atrocities that happened during the war were the direct result of you know this kind of interscene fighting between people who probably knew each other their whole lives. Right, and you put a lot of you put a lot of work, a lot of. Uh, I've, I appreciate the the detail that you put in, and uh, I'm going to go to we got to right after the the point where the the regulars had massacred the uh, uh, the colonists going to to uh, buy the smuggled goods, and this is after uh, this is after Daniel and uh, and several of the other uh, colonists go looking for them to find out where Trotter and, and his crew went, and they find them massacred, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, you have uh, uh, Captain uh, Parker mm -hmm. is there with them, and they're looking at the tracks. And I'm going to read right from it. Parker flowed to one knee beside the evidence, studied it for some time. Revere also studied the marks in the earth. Daniel spoke first. It makes no sense to my eye. I see three left feet as if the same man stepped three times in the same area, dancing, and the heel of a bare foot, as if they were chasing the Indian with three uh, with three left feet. And then Parker says, not three left feet, son, three shoes cut on the same pattern. Uh, note the toes straight and square like a box, not fitted shoes Mr. Revere wears. His shoes were made for him and for each of his feet, left and right. These shoes were made to fit either foot. Rogan's Revere in Zone Army shoes. So uh, 
so there's a there's a lot of detail, a lot of research you've, you've put into this. Now we know that we know that the uh, the British regulars that they they were issued shoes that were made uh, on one pattern, and then they were told to wear uh, wear the one boot on one foot and one boot on the other one week or, or a couple of days, and then they were told to switch over so that. Uh, so that either foot, they wouldn't run your either yeah. foot. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that this worked out well for for uh, for armies in battle. You know, if a guy had a leg blown off, uh, and uh, and then uh, there's that shoe he doesn't need anymore, and somebody else has had a shoe that's destroyed, then they can just pick up uh, anybody can pick up any shoe in the battlefield and put it on, and it's gonna. Uh, I'm not gonna say it's gonna fit, but it's gonna go on their foot. I, I, I bet it would really simplify logistics that you could – it would probably make it a lot easier to have different si- – a smaller number of sizes. And, and just like you said, they would be issued this pair of shoes, and every Tuesday and Sunday, the sergeant would tell them, okay, switch shoes so they don't run crooked. I don't imagine they were terrifyingly comfortable, but uh, um, that was the <laughs> Army's – British Army's solution to this idea. That, you know, Every man has his shoes, and if they don't fit, that's fine. Um, but that was one of the things that I did find interesting about the British Army, and I, I read several books on, on them, the officer cast, so that I could really give a good representation of that. But and well, yeah, go ahead. But well, you were uh, and you read that that uh, specific passage where where Parker was was reading the tracks. And I, I tried to really space that in there. I, I can remember a conversation I, I had once with a friend of mine who was special forces, and he said that, you know, you can have the best army in the world. If I know the ground, I'll beat you every time. If you know where the water is, if you know where the safe paths are, you, you'll do. You you have the incredible advantage over even a much larger force. Right, and because you're going to know where you're going to know how they're going to come because they've come the same way. Every year for 25 years, they've had people uh, who attack you on your land. You know that you know that how they're going to move because the land dictates the movement generally. So you know how they're going to come. You know how it's going to work out. And you know where to meet them, and you know where uh, where to defend. Exactly. And I, I was trying to to portray that. I mean, these these men had had walked every inch of that land. They knew it. They knew what the areas not to go into. Um, just prior to that, when uh, the the uh, reg- when the British lights are chasing Meg into the swamp, they stop at one point, and the the Tory guide that they have along says, "I think we're at the Sudbury swamps," and the lieutenant knows he doesn't know this area; he won't be able to get a force through it. So he says, "We're going to leave now. We're just we're going to go home." But conversely, you have Captain Parker there, even with Daniel, who at this point admittedly is somewhat of a greenhorn to the area. He says, I, we can go through. We can find her. And and they actually proceed on and they do so. Right. And you did a great job in uh, in mixing your the real-life individuals that were involved in the events at that time because – uh, because it's historical fiction, you have events that are, that are recorded. They, they definitely occurred. They've been recorded in history, and you do a great job of mixing those events uh, with the uh, with the fictional events and characters that you that you created. I thought you did a great job on that. Then, 
tell us a little bit about the process you use to uh, to create that uh, that situation. Hmm. Well, um, it, to be honest, there was a great deal of, of research going on. Uh, there, there was a point I think I read literally every book at our local library, and about this time period, any, anything that I could get, any magazine that had any kind of article I would get. And there was also, uh, to, to thank a thank someone who helped out a lot, They're in down in town here we have a shop called Smoke and Fire, and the, the, the owner, Donalyn Myers, was always very willing to explain anything to me or show me something if she could. In, in several cases, the... Uh, the flints. She was explaining the differences in the flints between the French and the English and the American flints to me. Um, I got a very brief class in how to flint nap from her, which is just a practice I'm I'm fascinated by, and I may keep trying to go with that. But uh, <clears throat> um, well, I, I especially but, like uh, the way that you introduced uh, Whittemore uh, in the tavern because. Uh, because as you're as you're reading it, you don't know who this guy is, but as but it but you can very quickly uh, determine that uh, that Daniel Ferguson, that the the lead character, has really bitten off a bit more than he can chew. He thinks he's uh, smacking, uh, uh, or he thinks he's going to smack down uh, this old man, uh, and uh, and things turn out quite differently. And you, I thought that was a very uh, it was a very good scene in your book. Oh, Sam Whitmore definitely would have been a man to stay on the side from, even even when he was up into his nineties. I think the, the funny part about that, when when I really started to uh, to pattern out the story, I had a much larger group of um, fictional characters interacting with the the real characters, Whitmore, Revere, uh, Doctor Warren, and such. Uh, and a lot of the that moment specifically that you were just talking about in the tavern when when Daniel ch- is challenged to a duel gets into this fight with Whitmore, it wasn't actually Whitmore at the beginning. Um, the the lines and the, the the joke lines and everything else. Uh, I had a, a French expatriate kind of based off of Cyrano de Bergerac in his later days, or or just the the famous old swordsman. And I, I had no name for him. I was just calling him Alamode, and uh, just so I had something to write down in that area. But the Daniel stumbles into him, spills the man's dinner into his lap. He leaps up and he tells, he says, "You're impudent." And Daniel says, "What does that mean?" And he doesn't understand the word. And, <laughs> and the uh, Frenchman says, "It means come out into the, you know, go out into the green and die there." And they, they go out and they have this duel. And as as much in Whittemore did it so much better in that the uh, the events happen where where Daniel's throwing up his arm to block with the with the Taj, and Whittemore is swinging down that great you know curved gaudy saber that he took from someone in Quebec, and he realizes this man is trying to block with a with a shield, and literally turns the blade so he slaps his arm instead of taking his hand off the wrist, and he challenges him. He says, "You were." You're used to using a target or a targe, which is what the Scots would have called a small buckler type shield. And Daniel, well, yes, I am. And well, go get it. I'll wait for you right here because Whittemore is crusty and you know, as he is, he he wouldn't. 
I don't believe he would try to take advantage of a man who was not ready to fight him. And right, when right. And I says, thought that was great. He said, he, where he told him, he goes, hey, go get it. I'll wait right here for you. Come on, go get your stuff. Come on back. Let's go. Yeah, Come on. Yeah, go get your gear. I'll wait right here. And Daniel says, well, I haven't put it together yet. And Whitmore says, well, then fine. I'll, we'll just carry this on another day. And, and Daniel is so incensed, he, he tries to, to jump him and finds himself flying through the air. And when he hits the ground, it tears open an old wound that he has. And there's Whittemore going, wait, I, I didn't do this. This man is injured, and, and picks him up, and the two have form a friendship at that moment as fellow warriors. And I, I felt as much as I enjoyed the the, the 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 entertaining nature, the comedic value of this Ala Mode character, I, I found myself thinking, why do I have this extra fictional piece in the story when history has provided me with this heroic figure? And I, I really just need to use him. Well, let me ask you about that for a minute, too. You've got, uh, you know, when you're, you're creating characters for your book, and, uh, and of course, you know, the writer's creed says, write about what you know, and, uh, and so you're writing about this time period that you've, that you've taken the time to learn about, but now you've got to create these characters. And uh, so is there a, uh, is there a Daniel Ferguson that's uh, living in your neighborhood somewhere that you work with? Well, no, but uh, my wife is a redhead. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> there, there's no Daniel Ferguson. Um, we we have some Scottish blood in my family, so I, I've always had an interest in, in the past and the battles of Culloden Field and, and things like that. William Wallace, all, all these great characters that uh, Sir Walter Scott brought to life. Um, and Daniel, he started out as that kind of everyman character, and it was an advantage to me, not just because I, I could understand, and in fact, the, some of the uh, earlier manuscripts had a lot more Gaelic in them. Um, I've limited it a lot to like just the use of Buchanan, which basically just means field, fealty soldier. Um but uh, the, the use of the gear that he carries, the, the targe and dirk and the uh, the basket-hilted arabesque uh, would be equipment that uh, a, a good Scot would want to have with him in these events. And at the same time, I also am showing the, 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 the poverty that he has in that he doesn't have a lot of the things that maybe he would like to have. He, he has, doesn't have a, a skein do in his sock. Actually, I don't even think he has socks now that I think about it. But uh, he has to use this overlong 16-inch blade to do simple tasks because he just doesn't have anything else. Right. Right, he had to make do with with what they have been. And, the uh, other... Oh, the there was another, another section of the story where you had... Uh, we had Ferguson, I guess, he couldn't afford the candles, so he was making his own out of... Uh, out, out of... Out of beeswax and, uh, and wax, right? Beads. It would it would have been uh, reeds, beeswax, and beef fat, and it was a it was a common thing that people would do. In fact, they would take um, horns that they weren't using to make powder horns, and they would make candle holders out of them, and they would fill this with the uh, the wax, and they would put the reeds into it, and they would dip it to make basically these candles, and they must have smelled you know kind of like a good beefsteak dinner or something, but. Um, <laughs> It would give off a kind of a fitful, smoky flame, but it was certainly a lot better than nothing. And 
Daniel, once again, I'm showing Daniel's resourcefulness. And, and another advantage of having this, this Scottish character um, was that through him I could explain things that were happening in Scotland, that how, how this man, he's on the run from the king, he's on the run from his lord, he's never known anything else, and he has to wrestle with the idea that here I am a free man. And I, I'm not beholding to my Lord anymore. And in the uh, tavern scene, when he agrees to help the Sons of Liberty, he tries to draw his dagger and say, I'll give you my dirk on it, which is an old Scottish tradition. Basically, you would lay the, the handle of the blade toward the person you're making an oath to. And it is saying, shall I break this oath? You You can kill me with my own dagger. And Revere... At the time, he's looking at it thinking, I can understand what you're saying. And you know, I, I value the, the oath you are giving, but I will just take your hand on this as one free man to another. And right, you, because Daniel, and in Daniel's mind, he's still uh, he's still living his life, because he's lived it so long, he's still living his life uh, as a as, fealty. Uh, as, as a almost, fealty soldier uh, and beholding to a king. Right. Right, and now let me ask you about the uh, about the about the time period that you were writing about because I feel that uh, as I was saying in the beginning of the show, I feel that this was a very important time in our history because the events, uh, the the things that England had pushed upon the colonies and because of the antagonistic attitude that had been taken with the colonies, the colonies had been forced to begin to think as if they were them and us instead of just our king. Uh, you, you, you reach this point where you're no longer thinking of uh, this is, uh, you know, we're English and we owe uh, our loyalty to our country and our king. And you begin to get a separation. And now, uh, now the the colonists fear their their government. They they've been put into a position where they fear their government, and they begin to work on ways to uh, uh, to try and uh, prepare themselves for for ways to deal with this. And you have uh, a lot of different organizations that were starting up at the time. You have the uh, uh, Committee of Correspondence, the Committee of Safety. You have a lot of different organizations that are working to uh, either gather intelligence on uh, on the British regulars and on the on the antagonistic government, uh, and to work out ways to undermine the acts that have been forced upon them. And uh, and can you tell us a little bit because you you've had to research this quite a bit. Tell us a little bit about how important the work uh, of the organizations that Revere and Hancock and Adams and the rest of the the founders, how important was the work that they were doing right then in 1773? 
Well, there's there's no question that the colonists really had the best the best G2 the best intelligence system going at, at the time at least at the in the early stages. Um, the, the best one I can think of right off the top of my head was the, was the powder that was in the Cambridge uh, powder magazine. You know, were they really going in there and, and stealing it and all that? Well, you know, William Brattle, excuse me, William Brattle really thought they were. He was the one that slip gauged the letter about how this is, you know, they're stealing the powder out of the magazine and you better move fast or else it's not going to be there, which kind of prompted the whole, the powder alarms. And when that kind of fiasco had, had, had come to, to a close with, you know, some 4,000 people marching on Boston ready for war, thinking that the Boston was being shelled and the British were, were out massacring people indiscriminately, both sides had to sit back and say, well, now what did we do right and what did we do wrong? And the colonists really really took those moments and they made something that you know, kind of lives on forever. And that's the classic image of you know, Paul Revere. He's, he's rowed across the Charles River. He's mounted up on Brown Beauty. He's riding through the... Um, Excuse me. He's riding through the countryside, banging on doors. You know the red coats are out. You know, get going. And then from that town, this house would the lights would go on, and a horse would take off, and he'd go to another house. And we have seven or eight horses riding out of town. Revere being only one of them. And this repeated itself on and on and on. And at some point, we have this person riding up to the side of a house and banging his stick on it and saying, you know, the the regulars are out and something must be done. And that man rises up and he takes his musket and he fires it three times out the window and or he walks across the, the dirt path in front of his house and he rings the assembly bell and goes and stands by the liberty pole and waits. And that moment where we have the, the people gathering and, we, and the typical colonial uh, New, New Englander attitude of we'll, we'll vote to what we're going to do now. But the the other aspect of it would I always think about would be Reverend Clark, who is also a character in in my book, and that comment that he made when um, Hancock asked him, "Will they fight?" He said, "I've trained them to this moment," and he didn't mean that you know I was out there every Sunday with them and making sure they can march in a straight line, or I, I was make you know I make sure their powders dry. He was saying that when I was up on that pulpit, when I talked to them individually, I'm explaining to them the rights of man and Thomas Paine and how in their hearts the the battle has, was for what is right and what is wrong has already been settled. We know what we must do. We we have our, our, our rights that we will stand upon at this moment. And I try to portray that also in Daniel and, and even Meg's interactions with Reverend Clark in my book. Well, you can see that <clears throat> these guys were as busy as could be, and especially Revere. And, you know, I look at the, the history written about it, and and I'm always amazed at Revere because everywhere you look, there's a, his fingerprints are there. Mm-hmm. You know, he's uh, he's been in everything. He's uh, he was a, He was a member of of more of the groups than anyone else uh, at that time and it helps to link them all together and help to uh, uh, to provide like a continuity of information. 
And I think that's one of the most important aspects of of how the colonies uh, reacted to the events of April 19th, 1775. They were already uh, they were already prepped. They they had planned this out. They had planned it. the history. A lot of history will teach, or, or they try to teach you that that the events of uh, seven, of April 1975 were uh, ones of spontaneous uh, farmers uh, and shopkeepers spontaneously uh, dropping their plowshares and dropping their hat-making tools and grabbing their muskets and taking off. And, that, and indeed, in many cases, that's what that's what happened. But it wasn't as spontaneous uh, as a lot of folks lead you to believe. Uh, it had been talked about. Uh, for a couple of years by that point, and it had been rehearsed. And because of things like the powder alarms, uh, the gauge had helped to train the colonists in how to react. And uh, and I think that uh, the preparation put forth by these committees, and of course the information passed back and forth by them, uh, was a key factor in the way that the events turned out that day. I mean, oh, definitely. You have like, the, the events of the just the people who were the, the committee of, uh, oh, how do I want to say it, the, the the people who were watching the Redcoats coming back and saying, well, we know that this guy is, you know, this light was seen down there getting his canteen repaired, and, and suddenly we have a bunch of officers going to polish their saddles and saying, you know, we're going to give them hell this time, and, all these different things that were taken to a central location and this intelligence was added up to well yeah it looks like it's going to be tonight i mean that was that was that little bit of warning that they had was was invaluable well the the information that was so quickly put out and so quickly gathered because uh if you read some of the history it'll tell you that that the uh in one at one point the British officers in order to feel that they could discuss something and have they had to walk kept, out to the uh, end of the pier, yes. <laughs> yeah. They had to walk out to the end of the pier so they could look around and see only the birds and the fish that were around and they could hear them because otherwise they knew that anything that somebody said was going to be transferred uh, as quickly as possible to one of the committees and then spread across the colonies from there. And certainly that that and the planning was, as I said, it was very instrumental in affecting the way things turned out by making sure that everybody knew that the bottom line order was do not fire unless fired upon. And we cannot be, we cannot be seen as the ones who started this, uh, you know, we, we wrong, like Sam Adams said. Yes, that go ahead and say it. Uh, yeah, put them in the put them in the wrong and keep them wrong. Just, and keep them wrong. That's it. That and it's also a good way to make sure that uh, that you're keeping things under control. And that is, don't overreact. Don't blow things out. Uh, you, you you react only to the things that they are doing. To you, if you're fired upon, then fire back. If you're not, then let them go. Don't, uh, you know, don't molest them 
lest uh, they lest they be first. Uh, and that was uh, that was adhered to throughout the the major portion of the day. Uh, now I know that we're getting past where your book is, but but I'm I'm talking about the uh, about the groups that were already working there in 1773. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I asked you about the about the creation of the characters and about uh about some of the the detail uh you have called yourself the uh, the Gibsonburg resident history goof and uh, <laughs> that would be me yes <laughs> I'm and, the only guy that bothered and, to get a cannonball <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I told you I had a Cannonball mold. I wish I would have kept it now, but I had a cannonball mold. Uh, I don't. I think it was a. Uh, I think it was an eight pounder. Because uh, it was a pretty large, uh, a pretty large mold. I wish I would have kept it. But uh, anyway, you talk. Uh, uh, you add a good deal of detail into the into the stories, and you talk about things like, uh, well, like the the boars. The boars on the muskets. They weren't all the same boar. They weren't all the same caliber. There were some that were that were supposed to be a certain caliber, and they were oversized, uh, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, tell us they a little bit about the oh, about the muskets there. Well, the brown vest they just musket. Was, the the brown vest musket was kind of an interesting piece of equipment. The the British used it, I mean, well past its actual usage, and and from then on they. Uh, made a habit of always giving their uh, local troops the, their second-class arms uh, during the uh, the Sepoys Rebellion, I believe in the, like the 1850s, the, uh, the indigenous troops were still using the brown best muskets. But uh, the, they were made by a lot of different makers, and depending on who made your musket, it could be you know really a bad piece of equipment or just a really lousy piece of equipment. Um, you're talking about a, a firearm that will roughly throw a, a 69 caliber lead blob about 70 yards, and if you're aiming at something about the size of a barn door, you may have a good chance of hitting it. But the muzzles, the the brown besses had a real habit of picking up a lot of fouling, a lot of carbon in the in the barrel, which would make it really hard to reload after just a couple of shots. So some of the uh, I guess more patriotic musket manufacturers would oversize the bore, and you can get really wild differences in the, in the bore from 72, which was kind of the expected, up to 76 or, or better. And in that, when, when I discovered that little fact, I, I decided it had to go into the storyline. So at one point I have one of the characters talking about how he's going up and down the line of muskets, and he's checking to see what the basing on the size on the bore is. And one of the other characters is watching this and says, oh, uh, what are you doing? And he explains, I'm looking for a bore, the, the right bore. And I, at this point, I kind of inject logic such as we today would use. Well, of course, you want the tightest bore you can because with the tightness of the bore, you get better accuracy and more consistent ignition. And the character in question will no, I want the loosest bore possible so that I can shoot as many times as I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I always wondered about that. Uh, you know, I've shot uh, quite a few 
of the flint lock and fire lock arms, and they do seem a bit messy. And uh, and I would certainly uh, and you have to take into account the fact that uh, that weather certainly affects them, and it doesn't even have to be uh, a good rain. All it has to be is like a thick fog or something, and uh, and it might not go off. Or uh, or you may get it like a squib type thing where it kind of went off, but the ball didn't come out. And uh, and there was a lot of uh, a lot of things they had to deal with back then that uh, we don't deal with as much now. Oh, definitely. I I remember a, a quote, and I'll have to loosely paraphrase it, that I discovered while I was doing my research. This uh, officer said it. 70 yards, if you can get your men to hold fire, you may be able to hit, uh, what was it, I believe it was something along the lines of seven shots out of 100, and much past 80 yards, you may as well be shooting at the moon. <laughs> right. Right, yeah, if you, got, if you got hit by one, uh, you would certainly know it, but, uh, but I've been reading the accounts, you know, you have guys standing in ranks uh, 50 to 70 meters apart and unloading volleys of uh, 100 or more and only uh, only dropping uh, three or four on the opposing side. And I, I tried to kind of give the reader a little taste of that in the, the kind of the climactic firefight of the storyline, which is, is, is specifically fictitious. I wanted to end the story with that with a a rescue of of Meg by by Daniel, and so I threw this together with you know probably one of the best uh, posse's I think you could ever hope to be with in the day, <laughs> Sam Whittemore, Captain Parker, and, and of course Jonathan Junior Her Junior think did the Junior Harrington. If there were actually two Jonathan Harringtons in Lexington, if you showed up there and said, I need to talk to Jonathan Harrington, they would have taken you to the wrong one. The the man that we know as Jonathan Harrington, who was shot that day, it was actually called Junior. Um, but when the uh, events are going on and the these four men are, are hidden in the brush and they fire a volley of double-shotted muskets at relatively short range and manage to hit one person, and Daniel stands up and looks down and he sees one person hit and thought, well, I probably more than I should have expected, actually. <laughs> Just to, to kind of demonstrate the total inaccuracy of these arms. Right, and that is a uh, that is a great battle uh, there, and I, I don't want to I don't want to go into it too much, but it is a great battle, and uh, and once again, it's not uh, so much the uh, the regulars, as it is the locals, as it is the it's a uh, it's a group of tourists. loyalists, yes, who appropriated some uniforms, right? And but uh, but they are still uh, kind of under the under the guidance, or you know, it's the uh, the underhand work where the uh, where the government, the uh, the British regulars at at a, at a low level. They know what's going on, and they're they're giving it a, a wink and a nod, and they're facilitating it to try and keep their hands out of it, and uh, mm-hmm. and which I'm sure was going on there. You know, you don't you don't get a lot of 
there's not a lot of records that you know that uh, are telling you exactly what went on, but you know that it was going on from accounts, and we know that uh, we know that a lot of stuff like that went on uh, before, um, during, and even long after the American Revolution. The same the and the same thing happened again with our uh, with our Civil War, where you had uh, groups fighting. Uh, before the war started, during the war, they were at each other's throats, and then after the war, they continued the fight. The civil wars are always the always the worst, always the the meanest and and the messiest. Well, in uh, Hack, in uh, Doctor Fisher's book, he talks about Doctor Doctor Warren going about with a pair of pistols stuck in his belt, and I, I detail that also in the storyline. And when he shows Daniel these these small pistols stuck in his belt. Uh, I, I don't remember the comment that Daniel makes, but Dr. Warren says, well, you know, we trade, how does he put it, we trade uh, tar and feathering parties around here like uh, favors at a May dance. And these people were doing just that. If you start to research the day, you'll find records of repeatedly over and over again of this, the Sons of Liberty team uh, would... Uh, Tar and feather this Tory, and the next night the Tories would go out and catch a son of liberty by himself and beat the tar out of him, and this would just continue over and over and over again. Right, and uh, uh, what was I just? I was just. I was trying to type while I was uh, thinking and listening to you, and it caused me to get off track. Uh, the there are there are several other books that kind of uh, work around this time. You mentioned the one Tories. Uh, there's John Tremaine uh, that uh, deal with it, and now there's you. And uh, have you talked to Doctor Fisher? No, I have not had the. I actually listened to you speaking to him on, on one occasion. I, I rarely miss Rifleman Radio. Um, I've heard him speak, but I have never spoken with him. Well, I tell you what, I'll. Uh, I'm going to be talking to him again in the next couple of weeks, and uh, I'm sure that he would be glad to to speak with you, and uh, and you guys can uh, you know can talk a bit about uh, about your upcoming project because he's a very very uh, knowledgeable and intelligent man. And, uh, oh, that would be wonderful. I'd, I would be honored. Thank you. Been very very knowledgeable about the period. Of course, he had to be. He, he He's written several books now tied into that and uh, and done a great job. And I was, I'm going to try and have him on the show again uh, in about two months uh, because I'd like to I'd like for him to talk about his uh, one of his other books. We had him on to talk about uh, Paul Revere's ride and then again for uh, Washington's Crossing. And uh, I'd like for him to talk about uh, another book. That uh, he has written that I think is very relevant uh, to our time. That discusses trends and waves in American history and why we have done the things that we have done, and possibly why we're going to do some things that we're going to do. So, uh, so that will be uh, hopefully that will be coming in the next uh, few months. And I'll uh, I'll certainly be glad to put you two guys together because uh, I'm sure he would be uh, be overjoyed to to speak with you 
about your upcoming project. And uh, I wanted to tell you guys that you can uh, pick up the book. I'm going to put it in the uh, chat right now. At uh, createspace.com. Three nine three three one six nine, and it's not difficult to uh, to find this because uh, what I did is I just uh, googled uh, uh, Freedom's Forge and Create Space, and it took me straight uh, straight to the link where the book is being sold. Okay, I'm talking as I'm as I'm typing, and I actually was able to complete the the sentence. There we go. I put that in the chat. <laughs> And it's uh, createspace.com, 3933169. Createspace.com, 3933169. And uh, that'll teach you the book. The the cover on that book was actually done by by Poster Boy, another apple seed. And uh, a lot of the proofreaders were actually apple seeds also. This has been kind kind of a family project. And if if you have your copy and you do flip it over, it does say, and, and I am working on this uh, portion of all proceeds from this, the sale of this novel will be donated to Appleseed. I've I've spoken to uh, to Fred about it, and I, I want to uh, kind of give back a little bit for everything that he's done. And that's uh, that's pretty dang uh, that's pretty dang nice of you, Michael. Uh, and and for that reason, if uh, nothing else, listen, I've read the book, guys, and uh, and I really enjoyed it. And I read it once through quickly, and now I'm going to sit down and read it again. And uh, my wife and daughter have read it, and uh, and I think it's a great read. And I'm really looking for it. now. I'm I'm primed and ready uh, for. The next book. And I'm really looking forward to that one. Listen, we got a question from one of the uh, from one of the folks in the chat, and uh, he wanted to ask you if you had any idea on what the closure of Boston Harbor cost the merchants, and uh, also what the value of the T-phone overboard was. Value of the T-phone overboard. Um, off the top of my head. I can't say, but I think it is actually in the book. Um, let me see if I can find it real quick. Uh, it was, I believe it was 143 chess. Uh, and uh, out of out of all three ships. Well, well I, I've got, section, uh, I found I a section the... on the that uh, once the incident was was over that uh, the king and uh, uh and England set a price on uh, on what it was going to cost the uh, uh the the merchants of Boston to make it right mm-hmm. uh let's see here I'm looking at it right here uh, 340 chests of uh, the British East India Tea Company, weighing over 92,000 pounds, right, right about 46 tons, mm-hmm. uh, were thrown overboard. Uh, 
and uh, the cargo was worth more than $1,700,000 in today's money. And this was, uh, let's see, Merchant John Andrews wrote in his December 18, 1773 letter, 10,000 pounds sterling of the East India Company's tea was destroyed uh, that night. 10,000 pounds sterling. That's a lot of money uh, then. Uh, like they're saying, in today's dollars, that would be them saying that uh, they destroyed almost $2 million worth of tea. And uh, and as you reported in your book, uh, they were very very careful on what they did when they went in there. They took the the uh, the key they asked, and destroyed they asked it. The captain for his keys and they with the lock. They did have to break. They repair. They paid for the repair of. I remember and. Yeah. Uh, because they, you had, in your book, you, you show them as they're leaving, they're making sure, they're asking the captain and making sure. Now, are we are we settled up? Uh, uh, you know, have we paid for any damages that you would have to bear? And uh, he says, no, they're good. Yeah, the, uh, I forget the uh, exact, I know it's Paul Revere, but I, I was calling him the, Daniel, of course, didn't know him at that time, was calling, the, calling him the checkerboard, I believe because of the paint scheme on his face. And he, I remember that he does ask the uh, the captain, are we all ship-shape in Bristol fashion? But the, the quote that I was I was talking about is uh, right here, three pence a pound weight, 360 pounds a chest, 114 chests aboard the beaver alone, Daniel thought, the Eleanor and Dartmoor doubtless carry the same. And he turns to one of the other uh, pseudo-Indians and says, that will give King George indigestion, I reckon. To which the uh, to which the uh, uh, fellow conspirator says, "Brother, tis not the sum, but the principle. England refuses us seats in Parliament, nor we are allowed to say in our governance." Right, and uh, and in the book it talks about how uh, once they got through, like we were talking about, once they got through, they uh, they made sure everything was good. They actually. Uh, they swept the uh, got brooms, they swept, swept the, the decks, yes. mopped the decks, make sure everything was clean and uh, and ship shape before they left, and uh, and forty two tons shoes over the side. <laughs> yeah, forty two tons of tea over the side, enough that uh, that the folks could actually walk on it, and uh, and I've I've read in places that it uh, that it stayed there a good while. And they made sure that nobody took stole any of the tea. Uh, I remember they caught one guy who either oh. had filled his pockets or the or the folds in his, the crease of his uh, pants or something. That was Captain O'Connor, and uh, I actually have a in my current Paul Revere's ride. I have a, some drawings of him, uh, Captain Charles O'Connor was caught stuffing handfuls of leaves into his coat. Uh, he was made to dash down the dock, and the, his coat was stripped from him and nailed to the whipping post. <laughs> <laughs> so they're really serious about this. This was not uh, this was not an act of uh, uh, of robbery. 
They weren't robbing the merchants. It wasn't piracy or robbery. Uh, it was a determined and deliberate act of resistance to and I, being forced, and I, uh, being forced was, to be. <laughs> go ahead. Well, when I was trying, when I was writing that section, we I have Daniel, my my outsider, who is brought in, and he is brought in because he he makes a very impassioned speech in one of the the taverns and is, and is watched, and they invite him to come along because they they have figured out who he is. They've watched him come ashore. They know who he is. And they've invited him to come and speak with them. And he's brought into this room where all these men dressed as mohawks that he can't identify are standing around. And Revere, who he figures out later it is, Revere is standing there and saying, if if we if we steal but one leaf, it is all really, it is all devolved to brigandry. We will we will do no such thing. We will pay for what we must do. And then he speaks to Daniel and says that we uh, we have asked you here to help us with a burden. And he says, you know, we we must force our way upon this ship. The man claims that he and the the captain of the beaver actually did claim that there was some disease on board and he needed to smoke out his ship, which was the treatment at the day for any kind of airborne diseases, before he right. could dock. And Daniel says he's he's lying. I was on that ship this morning, and there was no disease on board. And Revere says, well, a canny captain, I fear more than a, a slovenly one. And we must get on board, and I don't know how to do it, is basically what he says. I have to paraphrase it a bit. And Daniel says, I know how to get you on board that ship. But Revere is speaking about we will we will do no damage. We will pay for what we must must do. We have only, we're only there for the tea, and that is all. And there was there was not it was it was a deliberate act. It was a conscious act. This was an act of of protest against um, the the crown and the East India Tea Company. Uh, Revere in, in the book calls it uh, a protest most uh, what was the word that I used a, pr- a protest most desperate. I, I believe would be a good paraphrase of it. Right, and uh, let's see. Here. We've got we've got Revere. Uh, you, off the top of your head, give us a list of the uh, of the real life folks that you have plugged in that you managed to to add into the story. <clears throat> well, of course, there's Paul Revere. And Dr. Warren were two people that had to be in it. Um, once we're in Lexington, of course, we have Captain Parker and Jonathan Harrington. Uh, of course, Sam Whitmore had had to be there. But I have also added in um, Mother Bathrick and uh, David Lampson. Uh, another one that I added in and once again it's just it's a small part right now that will be important later is Jason Russell. And Russell kind of helps Daniel to decide once and for all that yes, I am a son of liberty and I am throwing my lot in with these people. They literally just meet upon the streets in monotony. And Russell just begins to talk with Daniel and much like the the practice that sadly has disappeared in today's society, 
they just have a friendly debate standing there in the streets. And neither one of them gets any, any anger or rancor about it. And they both just speak and they explain their position. And when Russell basically is taking the position that I have no interest in being a Tory or a son of liberty. This is a young man's game. I am just interested in preserving my rights under the Magna Carta. I and he I believe he even says, you know, my house is my castle. And, you know, the king may not enter lest I bid permission. And um Daniel offers a counter argument to it and the two of them just are standing there speaking and when they're done they shake hands and part as friends and Daniel realizes that you know I've I've been playing at this for a while but yes I am I am throwing in my lot with these people right and and certainly that was that was the idea I think of the majority of colonists at this time nobody was uh, yes, there were there were some people who, from the get go, had in their mind Adams and a few of the others had in their mind, at, at least in the back or the middle of their mind, that independence was going to be the only foreseeable outcome uh, for the events that were going to transpire. And, but for the majority of folks, they didn't think that way until almost. Uh, almost uh, a year into the actual war, until around 1776 when independence was actually uh, declared. The majority of folks this time only wanted their rights under the English Constitution. They wanted to be treated as English citizens and not as uh, uh, as, as servants or as lesser individuals. Yeah. They wanted to be treated what they thought fairly, and they weren't. During this time, they weren't. They were actually not being treated fairly at all, uh, especially with the the onset of the Intolerable Acts, where uh, if you had done something, even some uh, political crime, then uh, you were going to be uh, scooped up and taken to England, and your trial would be held there. And there was no way you were going to get witnesses uh, or people to, to vouch for you once you were in England. There's, they were over in the colonies, so you're going to be uh, convicted and sentenced there and held, you know, in, in what? It would, it's a mother country, but to, for them it would be a foreign country. And there were so many, uh, so many uh, rules and regulations that were being laid upon the colonists. <clears throat> of course, that's why it's called the Intolerable Acts, because this was something that they were not going to tolerate. No, un- unquestionably. I mean, the uh, <clears throat> as we as we say it when we're we're discussing this part in, in one of the histories. I mean, the king has this choice. We can we could step back and say, all right, let's let's discuss things. Let's try to work this out. Or we can double de- to, to use the the new phrase. We can double down on stupid, and we can move in and we'll seize their powder and we'll make their guns useless, and then they have to submit. Well. The uh, the German who came over here was was the one who was asked uh, uh, what was his name von Steuben 
they asked him, well, what did you think of the Americans? And he said, they're stupid, they're lazy, they don't like to work, they don't like to drill, they, they'd rather not do this, they, they don't like to listen, but if you make them mad, there is nothing they will not do, there is nothing they will not, no extreme they will not go to, to win. And that was the one thing that King George and General Gage and all the others repeatedly mis misdiagnosed, misguessed. They thought, well, if we just do this one more thing, the Americans will, will knuckle under and capitulate. And that just was not in our national character. Well, we already uh, talked about you, uh, about the fact that you're going to continue on with the story. Can you give us, uh, and you actually put a, a bit of a teaser at the end of your book. You put a chapter in there in, at the end of your book that uh there's a bit of a teaser for the next story. Can you tell us uh, what might be happening in uh, the second book? Well, um, <clears throat> right now, the I, I have rough outline, and I, I know about what is going to happen. I'm, I'm really progressing forward, and I'm looking toward the idea of getting into the area around the North Bridge and the, the events there when the Americans kind of crossed the T and we had two forces coming at those lights that were guarding the bridge. I think that might be a good ending point for book two. But at the moment, the the big thing that I am looking at is I'm trying to recreate the confusion and the uh, the panic that would set in in Lexington in those moments after the British have fired that, that victory volley and marched off. And I'm, I'm researching the, the various, who was killed and who was wounded and, and what happened. I'm trying to make it not just as, as, as readable and, and, and visceral when, so that I, I want the reader to really understand it, to be there, to, to see it. But I also well, want it to be as accurate as I can. Well, listen, I, I want to thank you uh, for coming on and talking about the book. I want to thank you for your apple seed work, Michael, and, uh, and for taking the time to write this story. And I'm re- really looking forward to the next book. Let me tell you guys, once again, you can get the book by going to createspace.com 3933169. Or just Google Freedom it is Forward also Create Link. <laughs> right. You can get a uh, copy of the book, uh, the actual book, or you can get a Kindle book. I got both of them, and uh, and uh, yeah, I think you're really going to enjoy it, and uh, as you will the the continuing books that will come after. Michael, thank you very much uh, for coming on the show. Uh, we really appreciate you devoting this time to uh, to speaking with us and, and letting us know what you're doing, and uh, and I will put you in touch with. Uh, with some other folks that uh, I've talked with, and and maybe uh, maybe we can get you going on that second book pretty soon. All right. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for having me on. It's really been a great pleasure. I, uh, I'm looking forward to getting back into it, and looking forward to this spring when I can get back out on the line. All right. We'll see you guys again uh, next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central Time. Thank you, everybody, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Michael. 
Yeah, I'm real.